to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome again to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to be in worship with you uh, this morning. We begin our fall sermon series, Roots to Roots, exploring how our past leads to our future. We're going to be looking at nine creeds of the Presbyterian Church USA, creeds and confessions that kind of orient what we believe, that are historic creeds that have uh, stood the test of time. I looked at a list this week, I think close to a hundred creeds and confessions have been written over the 2,000 years of church history, but these are the ones that are really fundamental to being a Presbyterian, to our faith. But I'll tell you, the only thing that really the the universal church can agree on are the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to look at next week, and the Nicene Creed, which we read today. And so we're going to explore what controversy does it come out of, and how does it speak not just about the past, but for our lives today. And one of the foundational scriptural texts for the Nicene Creed comes from John. John 1, verses 1 through 5. So let us open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts for the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Bless you. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I ask in the next few moments you might be our teacher, that you might speak by your spirit a word that only you can speak. Lord, that this creed wouldn't be some artifact stored in a museum to go and look at that tells us about an ancient past, but know that by your spirit it might spring to life and speak to our hearts and speak to our lives. It might tell us about that light that shines into the world that shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever tried to make sense of things? (laughs) When I was a kid, every spring break we would go to Missoula, Montana to, to visit my grandparents. I was always anticipating, and I loved that trip because I loved my grandparents and because they let me eat sugar cereal. And my favorite sugar cereal was Lucky Charms. My grandma would always have a brand new box of Lucky Charms there waiting for me. I could barely sleep with anticipation. And that first morning I was there, I would take that box of Lucky Charms and I would pour the biggest bowl of Lucky Charms you've ever seen. Only a sixth grade boy could eat that many Lucky Charms and I would eat it. I had, I had sideboards holding it all in. And I loved digging through kind of the regular bits of cereal to find the marshmallow charms. It was delicious. 
But it wasn't all about the cereal. As you know, sugar cereal comes with a surprise treasure. And my favorite prize or treasure was the secret decoder ring. I would, I would stuff my, I'm sure, clean hands into the box of cereal and dig all around it until I could finally find that secret prize, that secret decoder ring. And once I had the decoder ring, I'd pull it out, and there was a jumble of letters on the side of the box, and I would decode the message. And once I decoded it, it had a message. Invariably, it was something like, the prince fell in love with the poor young maiden, and you're going to have to buy another box of Lucky Charms to find out how it ends. <laughs> I always loved that secret decoder ring. Because it took a mess of the letters and arranged them and gave me the message. It clarified things. Without the decoder ring, you might as well have been speaking Sanskrit. You were never going to be able to make sense of the message. The secret decoder ring made sense of things. And that is exactly what the creeds and confessions of our church do for us. They make sense of Scripture. Now, they're subordinate to Scripture, but they decode it. They help summarize it. Does anybody have trouble making sense of Scripture sometimes? Who's read the entire Bible? Thank you for those two hands. Right? It's tough. There's a lot of different genres. How do you make sense of it? You've got psalms and songs and poems and narratives and prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature. You've got all sorts of things going on. How do you make sense of it? And the creeds and confessions are written to summarize it for us, to tell us what's essential. Oftentimes, the creeds and confessions were written at times of crisis and controversy. We're going to look at several. Towards the end of the series, we're going to look at the Belhar Confession. It was written in South Africa in the early 1980s. It was written in response to the church's complicity with apartheid there, of creating a racially stratified society. And they say, this is not just. And we're going to write a creed, we're going to write a confession for the global church so you don't make the same mistakes we did. We made them, don't you follow us down this road. Don't do it. Stick, stay true to the faith, and here it is. And so they speak about unity and transformation and justice. They talk about holy action, transformation. They talk about life. Confession of Belhar. We're also going to read the declaration, the theological declaration of Barman. It was written by what's called the Confessing Church in response to the German church supporting Hitler in the Third Reich. And some of you are going to say, how in the world could the church support Hitler in the Third Reich? We're going to ask ourselves that question, and we're going to read the Theological Declaration of Barman because they say it was a theological mistake. And they say, don't make the same one. Don't do what we did. And they offer it to the church. They offer it to us to guide our faith, to guide our lives. Now, some creeds are written in response to the culture they're a part of. But other creeds and confessions are written about internal activities or crises or controversies within the church. And today's creed, the Nicene Creed, is such a creed. 
It's written in response to theological controversies that happened in the fourth century. See, the first version of the creed was written in 325 in Nicaea. Now, if you think we're the first, you know, Christians in history to not get along, there's a great tradition of Christians not getting along down through the, the years. And they finished the Nicene Creed in 325, but then some folks are like, well, I want to clarify a few things. Can we edit it a little bit? And so in 381, they get together again in Constantinople and they revise it. And they give it to us, the Nicene Creed that we read today. And now we read it for those of you that maybe grew up Christian or been Christian for a while. You might say, isn't the creed obvious? What does it clarify? If it seems obvious to you, it's only because there are 1,700 years that have gone before us that make it clear. A church that has held on to it for 1,700 years saying, this is what we believe. See, we inherit these beliefs, a tradition that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and it comes to us. And we honor that tradition by exploring and engaging with the creed. And so what question was the Nicene Creed answering? Dare I say it's a question we often ask. The central question of the creed is, who is Jesus and why should I care? Who is Jesus and why should I care? And the Nicene Creed takes the Bible, the Old Testament in expectation, the New Testament witness, and says, this is who Jesus is. It decodes the message for us and makes it plain, makes it clear. Now, this might be difficult for us to understand because we're modern people. And the Nicene Creed is responding to questions that were popular in the fourth century. So we're modern people. If you go on to Mimosa Street this afternoon, you ask somebody, you know, what they think of Jesus. Most Folks on the street will say, ah, Jesus, there were, he was that, that grew, groovy Jewish teacher. <laughs> you know, he used to walk the pathways of Palestine, talk about peace and love. He kind of practiced a sophisticated kind of motivational magic kind of stuff. But he was a man. But in the fourth century, they had the exact opposite reservation. They believe the exact opposite thing. See, we don't have usually a problem believing there was a historical figure named Jesus, but we think he was not God. He was a human being. See, in the fourth century, though, they had no problem believing he was a God, that God would walk the earth. But there is no way he would become human. There is no way that God would dirty himself, would solely himself becoming human. There's no way. And so the controversy began and it centered on the text I read today, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the question becomes, how should we understand that word beginning? What does beginning mean? See, for years, the first 300 years, the, the church had taught Jesus was fully divine and fully God. But in the fourth century, there was a teacher who came out of Egypt and he began to teach that in the beginning the word, that word in Greek is logos, that Jesus was a f the firstborn of creation. It was a subtle difference 
But Jesus was a part of creation, the created order. He was not God. And this teaching, the Arius, that's his name, was teaching, raised alarm bells for the early church, especially a bishop named Athanasius. Athanasius helped write the Nicene Creed in 325. And it responds to Arius' teaching, and it responds by saying, Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Fully God and fully human. God is incarnated in Jesus Christ. There are two natures in one person. Another way I've heard it put is there were two what's in one who. Now a lot of you are thinking, so what? (laughs) If you want to read a great book, read Athanasius' On the Incarnation. It's brilliant. It's also very short. (laughs) But to get to the heart of the matter, thanks Don Henley, The issue can be summed up by one of Athanasius' buddies, Gregory of Nazianzus. He said this, that which he or that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. That which God has not taken on, God has not healed. And the creed, though, says God has taken on fully human flesh, has become human in Jesus Christ. This is what the creed affirms when it reads, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten. How many of you have ever used the word begotten in an email before? Never. That's because the church had to invent a word to describe what they were talking about. That there was never a time that the word or Jesus, there was never a time he was not. It goes eternally back. So we have God's word, God's message to us from eternity past in Jesus Christ fully God and fully human. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Those of us who may not be like me, who are not as sophisticated as the writers of the Nicene Creed, we might just say, in Jesus there was God in the bod. So why should we care? The creed goes, he came, he did all this for us, and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. In Jesus, God takes on everything that it means to be human. Everything that being human is, God takes on God's self, enters into all the pain, suffering, despair, death even, that we experience in our lives but is not exhausted or consumed by it. He proves his triumph over the powers of sin and death in the resurrection. Jesus takes on the human condition of all our despair, our doubts, death itself. Well, we've gotten far enough into the sermon and we haven't had a sports analogy yet. Suppose you play in the NBA and you're on a team with a superstar. Let's say Giannis, LeBron, Jordan, Kobe, Steph, someone like that. Now you're good. You're in the NBA, but you're not a superstar. You're not great. And you're going to need other players. You're going to need good teammates to be competitive. And you have other good players on the team and you're lucky enough to have one superstar. You have Giannis on your team. Giannis from the Milwaukee Bucks, 
one of the great players, superstars in the world. You're, you're so glad to, to play alongside him, to have him as a teammate. You came out for the game. You're about to tip the ball. Giannis comes over to you and says, hey, guys, tonight I'm only going to play offense. When it comes to defense, I'm just going to stand over on the side by the sidelines. I'm going to cheer you on, but I'm not going to actually play. I'm not going to get dirty. I don't, I don't really want to sweat too much. It's like too hard of work to get involved with. So I'll be over here on the side and I'll rest up for our offense. Now, that would be pretty annoying, right? Giannis, on the sidelines, you're, you don't want to get dirty. You don't, want to, you don't want to be a part of the team. You don't want to help us on defense. You wouldn't think he was that great of a player, probably. But what if Giannis actually played like Giannis does? What if he played on defense as hard as anyone else played on defense? When there was a loose ball, he dove for it. He blocked out. He played good help side defense, blocked shots. He gave whatever it took to be the best he could. He was in the trenches with you. He was sweating. He put his life, his body on the line. He was there. How would that impact you? He encouraged you. He'd say, good job. Sometimes he'd give you advice. He'd say, I need you to play a little closer on help side defense. How would you feel then? You'd feel inspired probably. The best player on the court is giving it his all. You'd feel comfort. He's there with you. You'd also get some wisdom by watching him play. Look, I can learn from him. This is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has not stayed far off on the sidelines of human experience, but has gotten in the mess. All that we experience, the creed says, God is there with us. All the pain, all the suffering, all the troubles, all the woe that we experience in human life, God is there with us in Jesus Christ. The creed decodes it for us. It makes it clear for us. But if you look in Scripture, you'll see the details. Let me give you a few highlights. Jesus experienced temptation and hunger when he was out in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He experienced anger when he kicked out the money changers for taking advantage of the temple. On the night he was arrested, have you ever been scared? Have you ever been fearful? Well, Jesus has been too on the night of his arrest. says he sweat blood. He experienced pain, the pain of torture and suffering, carrying a cross, being whipped. He experienced abuse and mockery, crown of thorns being placed on his head. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Well, you got good company. On the cross, what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God identifies with us our experience. God does not remain on the sidelines, but is here with us in the trenches. And that solidarity offers us comfort, encouragement, and wisdom in the course of our lives. The beginning of the 20th century, there was a Christian public intellectual named G.K. Chesterton who would often debate atheists and other intellectuals. And he would argue for the tenability, the persuasiveness, the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man. It responds to that same question that the Nicene Creed does. 
who is Jesus. And I love how he puts it. He says, right in the middle of all these things stands up an enormous exception. It is quite unlike anything else. It is a thing final like the trump of doom, though it is also a piece of good news or news that seems too good to be true. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. He goes on. I have not minimized the scale of the miracle. He's thinking Arius here. I have not minimized the scale of the miracle as some of our milder theologians think it wise to do. I love he just cast shade. Rather, I have deliberately dwelt on that incredible interruption as a blow that broke the very backbone of history. He's thinking of the BCAD turnover right there. The very backbone of history. I have great sympathy with those whom it seems a blasphemy. A blasphemy that might shake the world. But it did not shake the world. It steadied the world. It did not shake the world. It steadied the world. We trust and believe what the church has taught for 2,000 years. That the God of the universe took on human flesh, fully human, fully divine, and redeemed us. In Jesus Christ, God was not defeated by death or sin or anything else. But in the resurrection, God triumphs over it. Empowers us to respond with love for God and love for one another. Did not shake the world. It steadied the world. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you have come in the flesh. You've not left us alone, but You've experienced all that we experienced, and we know we need that comfort. We need that encouragement. We need that inspiration. And so I pray that we might trust you, or we might look to the one, remembering the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. Amen. been listening to the RPC Sermons podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.